You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To the Book of Nature podcast, exploring the nature of science and the science of nature from the perspective of Christians in the academy working in science. My name is Todd Pedler, and I'm a professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, and I'll be your host for this particular broadcast. Now, a note before we begin, you might be looking at They Live in the title for this episode and think we've entitled it as such in order to let you know that the hosts of the Book of Nature are in fact alive and have roused themselves from their pandemic-induced slumber and are soon to emerge into the daylight again, but you would be wrong. Instead, there's a much less amusing and more obvious reason, and that is that today on the Book of Nature, you see our subject is the 1988 sci-fi horror film, They Live, one of John Carpenter's more underrated but not understated films, and definitely has become a cult classic. Our episode today is part of the 2022 Christian Humanist Radio Network Halloween crossover series on the films of John Carpenter. To discuss They Live are my co-hosts for today, who I'll introduce to you now. Uh, joining me for the first time in a very long time is Dan Dawson, uh, Assistant Professor in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. How goes it with you these days, and are you as cold in Indiana as I am in Iowa? Uh, doing not not too bad. Um, like um, still trying to arouse myself from the COVID slumber. So um, it is in fact true that we do live. So um, that part of that is serendipitous. Um, yeah, uh, uh, it's getting a bit chilly. We had a little cold snap here. Had a couple um, nights where getting down into uh, a freezing temperature. So I got to think about getting my uh, um, my uh, sprinkler and system winterized and all that. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're still still alive, still um, um, ready to get back into the into the swing of podcasting and um, some semblance of normality there. Seemed, 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 seemed like a good time to re-enter the fray, uh, uh, as yeah. it were. Uh, yeah, I had to I had to shut down my outside faucets about two weeks ago, and you know this morning was twenty two. So, ah, anywho, um, all right. Uh, also with us today on this crossover event is Danny Anderson, whom regular Christian Humanist Radio Network listeners know as the host of the Sectarian Review podcast and the one who suggested this year's crossover theme. Uh, Danny is Associate Professor of English and Campy Films at uh, Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. How is life in the home state of Quaker Steak and Lube, sir? <laughs> wow, that's a that's a deep cut. Uh, no, it's good, yeah. Um, actually, it's funny you mentioned that. that began in Sharon, PA, which is like right on the um, border between Ohio and PA. And so I actually grew up in 
Cleveland, Ohio. And so we would go there because it was like you had to go there and then it exploded <laughs> into a chain uh -huh. everywhere now. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's good. Um, we have some snow here today. We're on top of a mountain where I'm at. Um, so if you were to, in Altoona, just down the mountain, you would have not had snow. But once you got up the mountain to uh, Crescent, where the college is, you did have snow. And so so it was <laughs> uh, it was an interesting uh, it's always an interesting uh weather phenomenon area <laughs> that Dan yeah. would probably be interested in. Oh, no, no doubt. And I don't know that I actually suggested <laughs> the topic. I, I think it, it came up as a list from Michael Farmer. I, I don't know that, I don't know that I didn't have some subliminal effect uh, on, on suggesting <laughs> it, but I didn't know. Obey. <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> no one had their glasses on and detected it, right? Uh, you but, will uh, do a podcast on and, you. And I have to say, I feel no small amount of um, like sort of responsibility for it though. And I kind of, I have this kind of fear that everyone chose it because they knew it would make me happy because <laughs> John Carpenter is my favorite artist, you know, across any medium basically. And, uh, and so I, I'm actually going to be on four episodes of this crossover series um, because I felt so bad about um, everyone else having to do this. And I wanted to make sure that I- Well, consider, considering that I confused this with John Carter, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, don't get any, feel like you have any pressure from me. <laughs> John yeah. Carter of Mars. Yeah, I, I, totally I unrelated. But. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, golly. Well, I think, I think this is the first time I've ever been on uh, a, a show with the two of you uh, yeah. with this particular uh, Dan and Danny combo. So hopefully our listeners can keep up with the distinction uh, because I'm definitely not going to refer to you as Professor Dawson and Professor Anderson, uh, as much as that, as much fun as that might be. Well, um, it, it, I'm used to it in my house because um, my son has the same name as me, and I call him Danny to distinguish himself. It shouldn't be that difficult to. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a junior too, and my dad also went by Danny, so I was always little Danny. So I'm also <laughs> junior, so so my son is is uh, uh, the third. <laughs> yeah, so I so you just don't, don't don't call him three dog or something like that, right? D three is no, no. I we 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 definitely have that in common. So <laughs> okay, well let's let's get to the show, shall we? Let's uh, uh let's uh take up our topic today, which again is John Carpenter's 1988 classic, They Live. Um, I'll pitch this one first to Dan, although I'll ask for Danny uh, as input as well. Of the, of the three of us on this episode of the Book of Nature, I'm the oldest of the old farts. Um, <laughs> since I actually saw this when it came out my first year in college, um, I'm pretty sure you didn't watch this uh, when it came out originally, Dan, um, since at the time you were surely still wearing short pants. So when did this film first <laughs> enter your consciousness? Well, uh, this came out, what, in 88? Yeah, I was 88. Eight old, so, yeah, I definitely did not watch it. It would have been bad parenting at yeah, that point. Um, yeah, uh, no, I, this, to be perfectly honest, this entered my consciousness about two weeks ago when we were discussing the topic for the crossover. <laughs> I, I just wasn't, never really had John Carpenter as a, big player in sci-fi slash horror on my radar um, before this. Uh, I mean, I was joking that I, in our email conversations, I confuse that with John Carter's. I like, wasn't that guy that, that, <laughs> that 
played the one dude on Mars and, and or whatever it was. And no, yeah. Um yeah, that, that was that was met with some amusement by folks. Um uh yeah, um I do, but when I looked it up, I looked up his his um his body of work, I found uh that oh the things on there. Okay, I've seen that. I think I think I remember seeing the original a long time ago. Uh, I I remember the remake what, from what 2011 or what it was better than the, the original, um, and rem um, remember thinking that it was you know pretty appropriately horrific and interesting. Um, uh, other than that, the, I, I I vaguely aware of the fog and maybe even saw it at some point, but it, um, other than that, yeah, I that's I don't really have any. Coming into this completely um, without any expectations or anything that's when, good. I, when I watched it. So uh, yeah. that's good. That's good. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Cool. Um, Danny, I don't want to think about too long about whether you were wearing shorter or longer pants than Dan in 1988. But um, no, longer pants. You? I was in high school. Um, uh, <laughs> so. we, we weren't allowed to wear shorts at that point in high school. So, <laughs> um, uh, I'm just picturing like a little German boy and <laughs> suspenders and shorts. I don't know. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, so for me, I actually, so um, it was something that I, I knew of through the culture, just from some of the lines in it, right? Um, mm -hmm. Particularly the famous line Roddy Piper uh, delivers about bubble gun, bubble gum and kicking booty, right? And so that, <laughs> that is a, um, a, a pretty, it was like part of popular culture growing up. And it was kind of before I, discovered John Carpenter it's hard and it was a point in John Carpenter's career where he was just sort of kind of ignored by critics and, and his films kind of came and went um, and it's only really in the 90s and the 2000s there was this rediscovery of a lot of these movies that um, people started understanding that they were actually very good movies that we just didn't pay enough attention to. And so this movie I kind of discovered in its phase of rediscovery. Uh, um, and so, yeah, so for me, it was, I don't even know when, but uh, like somewhere in the, somewhere in the mid to late nineties um, is uh, when I kind of finally discovered this movie. When, and when you uh, had yeah. started seriously studying film, I mean, at, at some level. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I don't even know if it, no, this predated that. Like I stumbled <laughs> into academia, you know, this, like I, I, I <laughs> And so I um this is just me being a fan of of particularly wow. genre films and movies. Yeah. yeah. And so I was kind of just at some point learning about kind of the the, the legacy and, and John Carpenter, yeah. of course, has had a huge influence on generations of genre filmmakers, especially. Sure. And so all of I started to realize like all of the movies I liked were made by people who love John Carpenter, right? And so <laughs> then I ended up, you know, just kind of looking into it that way. Oh, that's cool. No, that's 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 cool. And I, I um, it's really interesting for me to think about this film as it came out because that 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 particular line about bubble gum and kicking, um, rear ends, is exactly what you would expect Rowdy Roddy Piper to say yes. in the ring. In fact, he did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I got I got I got to interject something about that too. When I heard that line in the movie, I'm yeah. like, boy, that was delivered really weird and you know <laughs> like like i've heard the line before plenty of times in popular culture and i thought that was a terrible rendition of it i'm like and then i i found out afterwards that that was the original maker yeah. of that and I, like 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I, so I actually, I, go ahead, yeah. Dan, I'm sorry. I was just, I just, it was just this weird realization, like, okay, so that's where that actually comes from. Because I thought it it must have come from something else. And it was just a really bad version of it. <laughs> At least to my anyway. Go ahead. In this this past August, though, I was very you know kind of giddy, cloud nine, blessed to meet John Carpenter at a uh, at Steel City Con, Pittsburgh's version of Comic Con, basically. And he came. I wasn't going to go again. I went and I usually go in April. It was like a total zoo. I'm like I'm never going there again. And then like two months later, John Carpenter's coming in August, so I went and got the VIP package. But um, he um, said during his panel, his Q and A that that was actually Roddy Piper's line. Like, so he was a prof very famous professional wrestler. When I was a little kid, he was my favorite. Like one of my favorite people on television was Roddy Roddy Piper. I love, I had a t-shirt I would wear all over the time. Um, well, no, I was a Hulk Hogan guy, sorry. It was a sleeveless t-shirt I would wear um, with a Roddy Roddy Hot Piper. Rod, right? Yeah, yeah, Hot, yeah, exactly. Um, but he actually carried a, a little book, like an artist, of lines that he could deliver during his wrestling shows right and so that was in his book and he brought it out and john carter said yeah go for it and so <laughs> it did come out of wrestling and so yeah oh my gosh that is so perfect yeah. i <laughs> i, I don't think like i ever heard uh, well, a poet who keeps line, who keeps a notebook for good inspiration, right? And it's so. ancient Greek, ancient Greek theater. You know, I mean that <laughs> yes. that, that is it. Oh, golly, formaldehyde face though. That one I'd never heard that one before. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to it. I'm sure we'll get to it. <laughs> Okay, well, we need to we need to give our listeners um, a, a chance to hear uh, the tale told, if you will. So, Dan, can you give us a rundown of the plot? I will attempt to do so. Yes. Um, so the plot centers around um, so the main protagonist is, is of course um, played by um, Roddy. Or was it Ronnie Rod Piper? Right, Rod Piper. Rowdy Rod. Rowdy Rod Roderick. Yes. Roderick. Okay. And uh, um, he plays a character named, uh, I think just his name, Nada in the film, which is, of course, Spanish for Nada. I mean, no, Spanish for nothing, of course. Um, so that, sorry, that was a Chris Farley reference there, but you know, really big one. Uh, um, anyway, um, anyway, as, as the movie opens, he arrives in, in uh, Los Angeles and looking for a job. He's just kind of walking along with almost, literally just the clothes on his back. He's got this big backpack with his supplies in it, but he's homeless. He's out of work. Um, he happens upon a construction site and just literally just asks, you got any work? He said, no, I might, you know, and then he ends up working with him. He's got his own tools, you know, et cetera. He befriends a, um, a fellow named Frank there. And I already blanked on the name of the actor there, but um, also uh, at the time of, Somebody tell, help me out here. It was the actor who played Frank? Keith David. Keith David. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, and Frank uh, sort of takes pity on him and says, you need a place to stay to eat? He said, sure. And ends up going to, taking him to this nearby shanty town. He's able to get a meal and help out with around the place. While he's there, um, uh, there's a church nearby um, with a soup kitchen that, that they that helps feed this this town he knows some some strange goings on there with people um kind of going in and out and there's a, a preacher outside who's just kind of ranting a little bit and um 
inside of the, the homeless uh, in the shanty town, there's a fellow watching TV and on the TV static keeps breaking in and uh, a hacker keeps showing up on the TV ranting about a uh, conspiracy theory about aliens controlling everything and walking among us. And of course, and um, the one fellow who's watching is just saying, oh, that hacker, he's doing it again. And, you know, just kind of um, dismissing it. Well, um, to make a long story short, he investigates what's going on at the church and finds out that that's actually the hacker's base of operations. And there's a, a secret group there um, that uh, really does believe this stuff, that there's this conspiracy where aliens are run running the world and they're disguising themselves as people and um, that they're sending out some kind of signal that's basically putting everybody into a trance so that they can't see the truth of what's going on. Um, uh, while this is happening, there's this big scene where um, the authorities, police come and just literally mow the shanty town down while everybody's there, everybody has to run away. Um, in the aftermath, he finds a box in the church which has a whole bunch of these sunglasses in it. He picks one of them up, puts it on, and three things happen. One is everything turns black and white. So the movie is in color, okay, but it goes to black and white. So like the total opposite of the Wizard of Oz, right? Um, and uh, the second thing that happens is he's looking around and all the advertisements on billboards and things like that uh, in all the books, uh, magazines, et cetera, just um, turn into these uh, 1984-esque messages about, you know, one to three or four word um, imprecatories the to, uh, or oh, is that the right word? No, not imprecatory. Um, imperatives, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, imperatives. Um, to say like, obey, you know, procreate, um, don't question authority, you know, those kinds of things. And he just, there's a whole uh, really drawn out scene where he's just literally like flipping the glasses up and down and down and looking back and forth at these um, with and without the glasses. Um, he's noticed, the third thing he notices is that some of the people he looks at turn into these skull-faced, ugly uh, people. Um, and uh, there's a, a interesting, it, it's really hard to explain this from a, uh, you have to watch it to see, but like, they notice that he's noticing something weird about him. And some of them note, notice that he really can see them. And so they're talking into their watches about, oh, this guy, did we have one who can see and all this stuff. Um, and I won't get into uh, a critique of any of the, the movie right here. I'm just, I'll continue with the, uh, the uh, plot, but uh, I, I thought that was interesting. Um, so the rest of the movie is about essentially not trying to avoid authorities after he gets found out that he can see. Um, there's really a whole ton of sirens going on in the background all the time in the movie. So I don't know about you all, but I, for a very long time, partly because of my hearing impairment, I watch everything I watch, I put the subtitles on. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, I, I don't know, a good 20% of the subtitles are just sirens in the background, sirens in the distance, you know, and it's just kind of this 
eerie backdrop. It's just everything is just always sirens from authorities and police going on. Um, so they're they're uh, trying to catch him. Um, and I, this is the part where I kind of got a little bit. I forgot the the order of events. But um, so th is it? Does he um, hijack the car with Holly in it first, or does he have a fight with Frank first? I can't remember. <laughs> I think he kidnaps Holly first. That's his first. Okay, yeah. Right? So he's yeah. trying to escape, and he he just comes across across a woman, um, Holly. Um, and and basically uh, um, pulls her over, gets in the car and forces her at gunpoint to drive her back to her place so that he can find a place to hold up and hide. Um, and while um, this is going on, he's trying to make small talk with her and she's actually making small talk back and um, just seems to be in this state of shock the whole time, just completely deadpan and everything. And I couldn't tell if this was intended or not like just her, her, her character or what, but at one point in the, um, while they're, they're at the house, um, she points out something that is going wrong with the TV. And so he goes over to look at it. It's right next to the window. She takes that opportunity to literally defenestrate him, mm. toss him out of the window where he falls uh, a ridiculously far distance with, <laughs> without getting any apparent damage except for a scrape. physics. Yeah. Um, and uh, he and he runs off. OK, this is where he he comes across. He goes back to the construction site where his friend Frank is working. That's right. I remember now. And and kind of sneaks up and says, tries to get his attention. Frank knows at this point that everybody's looking for him and that he. Oh, right. I forgot about the part where he shoots up the bank. Yeah. He, he uh, before all this, he's um, he he gets a gun walks into a bank and that's where the line is like, I'm here to chew bubble gum and kick booty when I'm all out of bubble gum. So he's, and he shoots all of the aliens that are in the bank. But of course, nobody else knows that that's what he's doing. He thinks he's just randomly crazy guy shooting up people. Um, that's, and he takes off and that's how he gets on the run the first time. So sorry about that. I forgot that. That's kind of an important part. <laughs> anyway, he goes up, Frank's like, Hey, everybody's looking for you. Get out of here. You know, um, and uh, he um, ends up uh, dragging Frank with him and gets into this back alley where they just have this crazy, ridiculous fight <laughs> where he's tr not as trying to get Frank to just put the daggum sunglasses on for crying out loud. Frank's no. And then they trade left hooks, right hooks, um, uh, basically beat the pulp. What's that? I said suplexes and all that. Too. Oh yeah, it's 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 like a. And of course, if you didn't know that he was a wrestler, you would think Man, <laughs> this looks just like a WWF match with, because the, all the same kinds of moves and everything, you know, choreographed in sort of this ridiculous manner. But um, uh, anyway, big fight. Finally, after if you think the fight's over, and then one of them gets up again, starts wailing on the other one again. Um, Finally, he gets the glasses onto Frank's head, drags him up and and gets him to look. And then Frank's instantly, con, con, you know, converted, so to speak, convinced, goes and tries to help him. So they end up um, finding the where the um, new base of operations of the uh, this uh, this the secret group is, um, which then promptly gets raided by the police. Most of them get shot. Um, they Frank and and not escape. Um, 
find out that the channel, the news channel where turns out that Holly works at, the first the woman that defenestrated him, um, is actually the center of operations for the alien signal broadcasting. They end up at the uh where there's a big gala going on where the uh the aliens are openly gloating to a crowd of mixed aliens and, and humans, they're, they're human lackeys, so to speak, about how, how they are successfully taking over the world. They've put down this terrorist threat from this group that not in Frank were part of. Um, and you all are gonna be rich and isn't that great? Even though we're taking, or where our multi-dimensional expansion is, is almost complete, you know, and everybody's like happy and yay, yay, we don't care, we're rich, you know. Um, they find out um, that the the transmitter on top of the roof is what's transmitting this signal. So um, I'm cutting over a lot of stuff here, but they go up to this top of the roof, fight their way up there. Uh, Frank and um, Nada and um, and Holly is joining them at this point, uh, once because she find, apparently has put on the glasses and realized what's going on now too. Um, but as they get up to the top of the roof, she double crosses them. Turns out she's one of the aliens lackeys, doesn't want the status quo to change, um, kills Frank. Uh, there's a final showdown between Nada and Holly on the top of the roof. Where, um, he shoots Holly and then blows up the 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 uh, the transmitter. Um, transmitter's gone. The movie outtakes end with um, a series of uh, quick uh, cuts to uh, people wake um, now no longer have this signal that's scrambling their brain. They can see the aliens for who they are. Um, and uh, there's a couple of scenes in there that are probably is what gave it the R rating um, <laughs> uh, and uh, toward the end. Um, and that's it. It, do, it, it does end uh, um, a little risk abruptly. Yeah. <laughs> a little uh, a, a little bit yeah not yeah. a family uh, uh yeah. um so that's that's the plot um with uh only, hopefully only a minor co color commentary and sure. bias but yeah <clears throat> well uh so i i i think i think what i want to do is 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 hop to 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 a question to to danny just to ask a question about the casting because uh we've already talked a little bit about uh rowdy roddy piper and i again i must say for me watching this when i watched it it was absolutely hilarious that he yeah. was the main the main dude um but go ahead dan yeah well he was in i mean he had been in a few low budget kind of mostly sci-fi genre movies um springing out of his wrestling career which was interesting because he was always the bad guy in the wrestler but he was hilarious and so i think he was a bad guy everyone actually liked right and so and yeah. he had a talk show i remember called piper's pit and, and he would interview people in the middle of the wrestling shows and that kind of thing and uh and lines like from aldehyde face were delivered exactly like <laughs> rowdy roddy piper would have right and, and so and it was like um so he's definitely got this um falling into the cheese dip in 1957 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what was that yeah well and and in Carpenter said, I, I don't know if he said this when I saw him, but I saw an interview where someone talked about wrestling being fake. And he said, oh, no, I wouldn't call it fake. It's staged, right? So I think he understood mm -hmm. that that pro wrestling is a form of theater, right? And, and so there was a certain... Um, Wait, what? What's it's, that? It's staged? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> to, sorry to spoil that. Oh, but, you totally uh, ruined my child. Uh, but there was a kind of like audience, I think, that John Carpenter was aiming this at. And it was it was people like the pro wrestling fan. It was not meant for kind of high-minded critics. And this is part of the reason why his films were underappreciated for so long is because they weren't made for, you know, uh, you know, Miramax uh, reviewers <laughs> for uh, the New Yorker, right? And so there was a uh, a way in which he was very much a he's a very much a, like a populist filmmaker. And so the casting mm -hmm. of Roddy Piper, I think, plays right along with that. I remember one of his movies was called Hell Comes to Frogtown, which I saw years ago. It's a hilarious <laughs> post-apocalyptic thing where he's the last fertile man on earth or something like that. Frogtown, is that what you said? Hell Comes to Frogtown. And, uh, Just yeah. but from the title, I need to watch that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, Frog Monsters. And it's a great <laughs> movie. But, um, but, uh, but so John Carpenter said that he was attracted to him because he, he wanted somebody who looked like beaten up and, and, and that a could do the physical um, work of this film. Right. But also had a certain kind of face that was scarred and he appreciated like the pock marks and everything on Roddy Piper's face and the, and the scars. And so, yeah, he was, I think essential in some ways to the movie, even though it was very not unconventional um, casting and probably made it very difficult to market the film in such a way that it would be taken seriously, right? Um, however, there are, I mean, other actors, I, I don't want to, like, um, I don't think you can have this movie succeed without Keith David. Not to be confused with David Keith, who, if, he's, if you look him up, he's another recognizable actor. The name's just kind of uh, reversed. But, uh, but Keith David is a really, you know, as soon as you see him, you've seen him. He's that guy you've seen in that movie, right? And so um, he's an extremely, like, capable actor who could... Um, keep up with Roddy Piper in that fight scene. Um, and, and so I think that there's a way in which Keith David kind of makes this uh, work as well. Um, and in addition, like Carpenter likes to work with people like frequently. And so um, Peter Jason, who plays the kind of leader of the shantytown slash um, revolution, you'll see him in many John Carpenter movies, even as just a, a small cameo, like Ghosts of Mars, he comes in on a train at the last minute for like five minutes, right? And so, um, and so, um, and then the guy who played the drifter, who ended up betraying them at the end, uh, giving them the tour of the facility. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. George, that? George that? Buckflower, he's in a bunch yeah. of movies too. He's in The yeah. Fog, he has a small role in The Fog as well. So <laughs> he has, um, he has his like, his ensemble that he works with frequently and, and they show up in here too. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, well, I was interested um, also, I, and this, this raises some questions, but you know, Holly, um, she's, she's got those super pale blue eyes, right? I mean, yeah. you know, freakishly pale blue. And I, I, I gotta wonder whether there was something in that choice or, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I was the, the whole time watching the movie, just again, from completely not having any preconceptions about what to expect. I could not, I was having a real hard time trying to figure out if she was just really bad at acting or really good at it. Yeah. Because the, at least up until the part where she tosses him out the window, it is just this flat effect you know, like I said, that the staring wide blue eyes in, in a, mm -hmm. and just complete deadpan on everything with no motion. And then suddenly out of nowhere, bam, out the window, you know, mm -hmm. and um, uh, and then I'm like, oh, OK, this is a more interesting character than I thought. And so, um, yeah, it's good to know that 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 probably was intended to have that sort of sort of a, a effect. 
Yeah, Meg Foster is a real famous actress herself. I mean, very recognizable in the 80s and 90s. I mean, I've seen her in movies. Right? I remember I have watched seeing her in, in other movies, but for yeah. some reason. She's actually in some recent horror film that I think it's out right now, actually. Is it The Accursed? Something like that. I've seen her in something uh, very recently. But yeah, her eyes are very, like, obvious. I mean, no one has eyes like Meg Foster. And I think going with the theme of the movie about vision and the sunglasses and things like that, there is something um, weirdly, it fits with a motif in the movie, the, the, the casting of her and, and her performance. Hmm. Hmm. Well, um, so I, I, I think it, it, it goes without saying that this is a, um, a, a critical a film that is extremely critical of certain elements of, of, of our society. Um, there are those who, who really call this Carpenter's really most ranting time, a type of film, um, so what is it? What is it? Uh, what sacred cows are there that are being skewered in this film and, and, and where they uh, show up? And I'll ask both of you to comment on this. Dan first. Yeah. So in the immediate context of the times there, it was pretty uh, well established. I mean, well, I think Carpenter said it himself that, that it was a really taking a target at Reaganomics and Reagan's whole um, uh, trickle down economics like uh, well, um, sort of idea. And the aliens are are quite transparently meant to be the uh, rich elite, and um, you know, I mean, it's not. There's no there's no room really left for interpretation there. It's, it's pretty much spelled out almost exactly like that in the in the movie that um, that they are they're, they're taking over um, the all the the entire enterprise of of all of the world there's no countries anymore i think one character says at one point it's just them um they're strangling the <clears throat> the middle class driving most of them to poverty and the rest are being corrupted by promises of upward mobility and and favor of the of the aliens and um uh that's really you know it's it's very ham-fistedly um um uh, in numerous points in the movie given um, out that way. So, yeah, I, that's, that's, that's the most obvious, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, there, but yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a scene where um, the TV is on and there's um, a speech being given and it's, it's literally the new morning in America speech, which is, which is one yeah. of Reagan's most well known. Yeah, and I, 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 no, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. I remember watching it. I was watching it last night and I was a little bit distracted a couple of time, uh, times because I was just, um, um, uh, from things going on in the house. But uh, I, when that um, scene came on, so I, I was, I knew I, I was thinking to myself, I know, I know I should know where this came from because this, this is very familiar. And then when I afterwards I oh yeah duh that was the that was the Reagan speech you know the New Morning and American kind of motif yep yeah. yeah yeah and it's like the end of Reagan's term right as president is when this movie is released it's in the wake of Bruce Springsteen and Born in the USA and and the kind of obvious critique of um, the Reaganomics and in England you have people doing the same thing with Thatcher you know like Billy Bragg and, and artists like that are making similar kinds of like economic critiques through art and so yeah John Carpenter is just kind of making a movie that really is in the spirit of a lot of um, 
protest music in a lot of ways. And so I think mm -hmm. that that's, uh, that's definitely a way to think about it. But also, I guess it's part of the system of control and manipulation. But consumerism is sort of mm -hmm. a, a, um, a target of this movie. Obviously, the the products are all subliminal messages and some of them just say consume right um and so the, yeah, and, quite literally just consume yeah, yeah and there's a way in which there's a um uh, a uh how do i want to say this a critique of television as like a means of blinding people so the news reporters are really space aliens right but and all the ads that support the news are also part of the manipulative message. And so I really do think there's a an element of amusing ourselves to death in this movie, um, mm -hmm. which I feel like, I don't know when that book was published. I feel like it was in the nineties, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't remember if this was before or after that that book came out, but, but there is definitely a critique of, I mean, a Marshall McLuhan-esque critique of the medium of television as a kind of, uh, it doesn't matter what the message is coming through the signal, the distraction caused by the mess by the messenger in this case the television set is the problem there's a scene early on when he's walking when nada is nada he's never no one ever calls him anything that's he's just in the yeah. credits does he give a name nada right um because yeah. he's just like every man and no man but he's walking up the street and there's a young um guy really nobody ever names him in the oh, no. i do no. you would think i would have noticed that yeah, yeah. but he's like Okay. walking down the street and um there's a young guy looking into a, a a shop full of televisions playing and he's just like hypnotized by whatever's on the tv screen right and and so there's a way in which um that's a major target of this too but and, and i think there's also kind of like like it's ham-fisted for sure there's it's not not a subtle movie in any way right mm -hmm. this is very much like a punk rock song is not subtle, right? It, it's yeah, just, it's got <laughs> that's a good of, analogy. There. Yeah, it really does have a punk rock feel, kind of right. Yeah, and um, and it's interesting. I guess we'll talk. Well, later on, we'll talk about Carpenter's career and where this sort of mm -hmm. like sets in. But um, but yeah, I think that that's a um, uh, uh, a way in which I, I'll, I'll save that comment about yeah. uh, that I'm going to make there about evil, about the nature of evil. But mm. um, the last thing I do want to say, since this is a science show. Um, and you guys are scientists. Um, it's interesting. I didn't pick this up until this viewing of it. I kind of, I mean, I know I remembered it, but it just didn't stick with me that global warming is like an intended outcome. This has got to be one of the yeah. earlier references to gold, global warming in popular culture, 1988, right? Uh, this has got to be one of the earlier references to it. Um, and, <laughs> and it's like, it's a intended outcome by the aliens. They're basically terraforming the planet through the activity of capitalism that is making their human collaborators rich, right? So they're not yeah. really interested in money. Money is just sort of a way to get people to pollute the planet so that it warms up to match their atmosphere from yeah. the planet they're from. And so I think that's a really interesting, very early critique of, mm -hmm. uh, of global warming. And this is why I think people came around late to John Carpenter. Like he was in mm -hmm. many ways ahead of his time, uh, but just doing things for an audience that made critics not take them seriously. Yeah, I, yeah. I want to. I want to think that. Say that you're. You're probably right that it was one of the early ones. I don't know if it's the earliest, but um, it's, it's definitely it's, there. It's, um, it's right up there. I mean, nineteen eighty-seven. When would people start the That's way before yeah. Al Gore, right? Right. right. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But there's a um, something um, that I, I remember being uh, keyed into that scene too, and. Um, <clears throat> The uh, the thing about the, the I thought that was actually a nice twist 
that that was that was actually a deliberate plan from the aliens. Um, and and it's um, then I remembered that this is not the first time I had seen that motif of aliens terraforming um, the Earth by with greenhouse gases. Uh, I don't know if you remember there was a movie with uh, um, well, more recent than this one, obviously, but uh, was with uh, Charlie Sheen, uh, The Arrival. Remember oh, that? I never saw that. Oh. Um, uh, and that that's actually an explicit plot point in there. Mm. Except mm -hmm. the, the it's a little bit different in that in that movie the alien the same kind of thing. The aliens are masquerading as people, but they're wearing masks this time. And uh, and in this movie in that movie they're pumping out tons of methane and stuff into the atmosphere. And there's one scene where the one of the aliens is basically saying, "What you would have done in a hundred years, we're going to do in 10. You know, kind of thing. So it's a similar. I don't. I, I now that I saw this movie, I said, okay, they, they had to have had to have gotten inspired from this this one. Mm. I don't see mm. any. I mean, it's too much of a coincidence. So that yeah, was yeah. an interesting moment. Yeah, it it's interesting. Um, to going back a a, a little ways. Um, one to talk about names. So mm -hmm. Frank, you know, Frank Armitage mm -hmm. is his name. If you look at the opening credits, Frank Armitage is credited with the screenplay. Yeah. So if yeah. You, which which is you know of course it's Carpenter. I, but. I was yeah, Carpenter often uses a pseudonym for his screenplays. Yeah. One is he uses the name Martin Quatermass for uh, <laughs> for one of his movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's 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 fun. Number and number number two, um, Neil Postman, uh, amusing ourselves to death, is 1985. Okay. So yeah, this is right on the heels of that, rough right? contemporary, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and interesting, in, you know, one other thing which I, because um, I, I really did enjoy reading that book in particular, um, and that book comes on, uh, the origins come at a conference in which um, Neil Postman was participating on a panel, in a panel on 1984, mm. uh, which... Now, you know, amusing ourselves to death, I don't know if that's an inspiration for any of the ideas necessarily in this film, but it could well be. And, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. there's lots of other resonances there, too. Yeah, for um, sure. If you like. Oh, well, so um, let us then uh, hit some high points, high scene, you know, scenes that you find uh, particularly enjoyable, uh, effective in their messaging or maybe are puzzling. Um, Danny, let's uh, go first and we pop this around a bit. I guess I have two, and I don't know if they count as scenes per se. Well, one is a scene, sure. but um, the setting of the church as kind of the, the church has been repurposed for this kind of revolutionary message. Uh, I think that's very interesting. Um, Carpenter's got a very interesting, they're very interesting theological ramifications that run through a lot of Carpenter's films, like The Fog, for example, which Christian Feminist Podcast is going to be covering um, with me as a guest, <laughs> because of my guilt complex about <laughs> making everybody do John Carpenter. But The Fog, for example, very much feels like a uh, like biblical vengeance kind of um, narrative. And, um, and so there's a very complicated and interesting like religious dynamic in Carpenter's film I would not I mean I don't believe he is any kind of believer at all but he um, clearly has some respect 
for the kind of revolutionary possibilities of the institution of the church. And so this this street preacher, this blind African-American street preacher is one of the first people out there putting out this message. And he ends up being part of this um, this uh, this movement. And inside the church, they hear from outside, you can hear choir practice all the time. But when Nada goes in, it's just playing on the tape. And the activity of the church is actually enlightenment, right? I mean, it's they're basically putting a message out through the television, manufacturing these sunglasses and later contact lenses so that people can see um, the truth. And it, it gets through the signal that the aliens are using to block our perception of things. And so I think the church as a kind of like center for revolutionary activity is a really interesting move on Carpenter's part as someone who doesn't necessarily, I imagine, I mean, I'm not speaking for him, believe in Christianity as people perhaps listening to this show might, but I think he still has some respect for the possibility, for the, for the function of, for the function for good in the world uh, out of the institution. Right. And so I think that's very interesting and it's sort of related the street fight, um, the alley fight that, that Dan talked about, it's ridiculous, right? And apparently Carpenter in the, in the Q&A I saw, he said that they, Car, uh, Roddy Piper choreographed that um, and he and Keith David worked on it. I think he said nine days. They they practiced it for a long time. <laughs> um, it was it was over, it was a long time. It was four or nine. I can't remember what the, uh, the actual number was, but, and so it was very purposefully done in such a way to be kind of ridiculous and, and it takes up like 10 minutes of screen time in an hour and a half movie, right? And so it's like, what is this doing? And and so I really think Carpenter's not a flippant, um, he's not a flippant or indulgent filmmaker. He's a very minimalist filmmaker um, overall. And so for him to like a, carve out that much of his movie, there had to be a purpose for it. And for me, it ties into this theme. It's the allegory of the cave is a clear like, reference point for a lot of this movie with the sunglasses and once nada has put sunglasses on and has come out of the cave and sees the reality of the world um there's actually uh, he gets headaches right it's difficult for him to process this as plato talks about the enlightened person will have this moment of kind of like disorientation and for him to kind of struggle to get somebody else to look at it um i think it ties in with this larger interest in the allegory of the cave that um, this movie's clearly, very clearly making a, a point to sort of um, to make a, a story out of this allegory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be a little early to, to bring this in, but I'm going to put a, a link to a just a five-minute little clip uh, of uh, uh, Slavoj Žižek, who's well-known, well, very controversial philosopher, but really insightful in many, many ways, talking about that very thing, uh, yeah. talking about the fact that knowledge of the truth is painful, uh, that you have to force yourself, uh, you know, in, in, in some ways to accept uh, those things. And that's exactly what is going on in that street fight. I mean, it is it is the, the, the former prisoner come back down into the cave um, being reacted to exactly as he is uh, 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 with violence um, and also himself having to uh, compel someone else to look in the same way uh, at, at, at the world around him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I should say um, I, several years ago, I recorded a show about this on for the sectarian review. I believe it's episode 70. If you want to go back, <laughs> um, 
And I saw in the show notes that I had linked to that video. I have no memory of anything that Carter Stepper and I said about this movie. It's been so many years ago. I don't remember what I said, but I do know that I did must have referenced that video. <laughs> about my so I'll just make, I'll link to your link then. <laughs> well, you can link to the subject. Everybody wants to go back in our catalog and listen to what I might have said five years ago. Um, that's fine, well, but yeah, but go ahead. I, I hadn't known you, you, you did that. So uh, now after this episode, I'm going to have to go uh, uh, check out that uh, that, that, that episode. Um, Dan, what do you got? Yeah. So first thing was something um, when you brought up the Danny, when you brought up the, the street preacher and there's that once I, I just remembered this when you were bringing it up, that one scene that, that near the beginning, when he's first starting, when not as first starting to notice something weird is going on. Um, he looks, he's seeing, he's hearing it simultaneously hearing um, on the, um, the uh, hacked TV, the guy's talking about the 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 alien conspiracy and what reading the guy's the preacher's lips from a, all across the way the preacher's apparently out there saying exactly the same words and and time mm -hmm. to the uh the audio coming over the tv at least that's how i was interpreting it and i'm like what is going on here i, I was confused i thought that okay at first, my 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 thought was, okay, the aliens are controlling the preacher to say these things, or but I'm like, no, this is the this is the speech against them. So, I was um, super confused by that. So um, point. So maybe you can enlighten me what was going on there. Why uh, was was that scene put there where he is talking at the same cadence with the 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 voice that's coming over the TV? I don't I, get that. Well, I took it. I mean, you have kind of blind seer of Thebes, uh, you know, imagery because he's a blind preacher, right? But I yeah, took it right. um, as some sort of, I, I took it to be him being the, the writer of the script. And so he was, um, he was actually preaching the truth. It's very similar to the material he was delivering on the street. Um, and so I, I had a, I, the way I took it was that the person delivering the message over the air who I can't remember that actor's name um, but he was actually reading the script that this preacher had written and so he was oh. um, definitely part of if not the writer of it he collaborated on the writing of the okay. script and so as yeah. it's being read he's like saying it just to kind of indicate his connection to the message itself okay that's interesting yeah maybe the delivery of it was just what was confusing me because it was like in time with how he was hearing it in the movie and then seeing the guy's lips moving and yeah. saying it exactly at the same time and the same and that's what threw me off but sometimes you see yeah. like um speech writers in movies i think this happens in the lord of the Rings series actually it's on amazon right now um elrod is uh is writing a script or a speech and he's like mouthing it along with the king <laughs> and so i, I think yeah. it's, i think it is a, a equivalent oh, okay. okay okay yeah that's and 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 that's i just re recently rewatched parasite and there is there is exactly this kind of thing a choreography a choreography where um so we don't need to get into this film although that's a fantastic film and i would love to do a show on it. Yeah, yeah danny that's i'm looking at you yeah, man. yeah let me know you're the one who's busy you're the one doing yeah. like beaker experiments i'm just sitting I, yeah. talking about movies I, i've never used a beaker in an experiment since high school so um same. But but anyway, I mean, there's that same idea. So that was the way I took it, because it was exactly what had just happened, you know, in my recent watching of Parasite, where the young the, the son is mouthing the words that his father is is reciting in practice for their grand delusion. Mm -hmm. um, 
And anyway, so, but I also think, you know, he, it's important that he's a blind preacher, right? Mm -hmm. Because he, he is one who sees, but not seeing. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I really, yeah, I, I, I got that, 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 that was definitely a message I received there, but yeah, but no, thanks for helping me through that. Cause I was, a, that was a puzzling part for me, but um, I guess the, um, the, the, we already mentioned the fight scene, so I won't be, be, belabor that. I just remembered sort of watching that a little bit, which is like a kind of like that, you know, jaw open kind of the whole time. I'm like, okay, when is this over? going to end? No, it's not over. He's going to get up and beat the tar. I also thought it was just like, it's one thing to like try to, you know, yeah, he's asking him to put the glasses on. The guy says no, but then almost immediately, his go-to move is to say, well, I'm just going to kick your butt. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't think this is going to go the way you want it to. You know, uh, but, uh, and um, so I just, I thought, yeah, obviously the, 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 the scene was outrageous, overwrought, but it makes sense in the context of the fact that it's, you know, pro wrestler is doing it. And of course um, I, uh, I had read up on the actors just before watching it. So I knew he was, and I realized that, oh, yeah, all of those moves, all WWF stuff, you know, I get it now. Um, uh, the other, I guess there was one other scene, and I think I also briefly mentioned it, where um, he's in Holly's house and Holly just tosses her out. I think that sort of changed my entire perception of that actress in, that, in, that, in the movie, because it's like, okay, wow. That was not that. That's the only real place that I felt surprised. I was not expecting that part. So, yeah, <laughs> and it, it is interesting because into this movie, I mean, there are collaborators that allow the aliens to to function, right? And so that introduces, I mean, her character. We don't know it at that time, right? But, right. but she turns out to be a collaborator, and so that's an interesting kind of innovation. It isn't just that aliens are doing this to us like we're sort of being betrayed by people that yeah. are um that are participating and so her her inscrutability i would say like mm. she's, that's a good word very inscrutable yeah you can't read to the point right. where it fooled me into thinking that it was just really bad acting but yeah <laughs> so, exactly. I, yeah very very interesting there yeah. Yeah. and and the other thing i i we got to talk about, I mean, the scene that where Roddy Piper first puts, first puts the glasses on yeah. and makes the first discovery. That's one of the great sequences in Carpenter's entire career, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a very famous um, sequence in the movie, in, in all of movies now. It's really well done methodically laid out just the kind of this act of discovery. And it's, um, it's, it's an amazingly shot and edited little sequence that like is yeah one i agree of the most memorable things that's probably the best part of the movie um yeah. in my opinion is well a lot the, the best parts are where people aren't necessarily talking but um where but where the messages are like the dialogue and um it's a little bit uh distracted well I, we're getting ahead of things so we'll, we'll get, we'll <laughs> no, get to I, that we'll get to that but i i, I do i do i especially with the encounter at the magazine rack, you know, with, with, you know, the, the wealthy dude who is the alien. Um, there's a lot of not, you know, silent exchanges going on there, you know, sure, just yeah. looking back, looking at him again, looking at him again, looks, you know, get, gets into, goes to his car with his newspaper, which is, you know, full of, uh, full of these, uh, black and white, uh, uh, same, same stuff. Yeah. Um, Interesting also to question, I don't know that we need to go into this necessarily, but, you know, is everybody enslaved in some sense? 
uh, including the aliens themselves. But uh, that's that's a, a, a yeah. I was wondering about that too. It's like how many of the aliens were really knew what was going on. Yeah. You know, I mean, why well, do they, they all see the same? What's that? Yeah, did they see the same? You know, the same yeah, newspaper. Right. That, yeah, that's a good, know, good question. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's also that scene remind was you were talking i i took note of the the book rack behind him um uh, at, when i was standing at the magazine rack and there's a little paperback okay. i one of them i couldn't make out what it was the other was an edgar edgar casey um but yeah a book which i thought was i noticed that too a fun little, a fun little joke you yeah know? Um, i did but yeah <laughs> i thought that was interesting yeah no. well um I, I'm going to turn to our carpenter expert. Um, uh, I, I didn't want to, but here we are. Um, in an interview, Carpenter summed up his experience in film this way. He says, in France, in a France, I'm an auteur. In Germany, a filmmaker. In England, a genre film director. But in the USA, I'm a bum. How do you react to that? And uh, and and can you talk a little about this? In is in his. Over. I, I don't want to say his his corpus because that's just too on the nose. Um, but how does this stand up as a carpenter film? What's you know what is it about it that makes it a carpenter film? Well, I mean his like I mean he's talking about his rejection by critics, right? And even Halloween was initially rejected by critics, mm -hmm. and he'd given up on it and was in the middle of making. He made the biopic about Elvis Presley in the in 1979 for Made for TV with Kurt Russell, um, like two years after Presley died. So he was in the middle of filming that when uh, someone um, called him and said that Halloween's really taken off and someone was offer you a two picture deal and he's like why what <laughs> like everyone hated <laughs> halloween he didn't even know that it would become a hit because like the village voice or someplace had written a positive review of it and started a, an appreciation for it but and that really set the pattern for after halloween he kind of established himself as like the new hitchcock kind of kind of figure and and so but his films never did what I think people expected them to do. And so you have to understand John Carpenter. And so he was wildly dismissed. All of these great movies from the 80s, especially, but into the 90s, were just made like, completely dismissed and ignored by critics. And I've gone back and watched most of them at this point in the last summer since I was preparing to go meet him. And I, I would say even like really minor ones like Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and, and his last movie, The Ward, are really interesting movies and, and unjustly um, um, dismissed. The one I'm covering on Sectarian Review is Prince of Darkness. And I actually think that's a work of genius. Uh, and so, um, but, but again, when it came out, nobody cared about it. And I think you have to trace it back to where John Carpenter exists in the filmmaking landscape. He is He grew up loving Howard Hawks, right? And so he is like a figure for whom filmmaking is not like the film school generation of Scorsese and, and, and Coppola and all these, these people, the people who film critics admire, right. And like, and I like those guys too. I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not taking a side here, but, um, but he actually, for him, filmmaking was like an auteur working inside a studio system like Howard Hawks. Right. And so think from another world, of course, inspired what most people take to be his great, achievement is the thing right um and so um there is a um a um 
a way in which his kind of idea of filmmaking just never matched with particularly American audiences. And just like Hitchcock before him, uh, like he was never taken seriously by critics until who? A Frenchman, Francois Truffaut, uh, basically said, this guy's actually an auteur and a genius. And so, and then that's when we started thinking of Hitchcock in that way. So it's not surprising to me that the, um, uh, that the French, of course, particularly like him. And so what makes something Carpenter-esque, I guess, uh, is what I would say is usually like a pacing, like it's very kind of a slow burn, um, his movies in general. This one, a little less so, but like Halloween, The Fog, the prince of darkness like all of these have a kind of like methodical um not showy kind of he's not showing off technique right there's like it's about atmosphere more than anything else he's very much hitchcockian in that way uh he, he's very much about the fear of the gun going off rather than the gun going off right and that that kind of is something that definitely makes him um uh hitch, like uh, an auteur right and so the um um, other thing is, I would say that his, I, I, there's a great book, a tiny little book that I teach in my horror film class called The Weird and the Eerie by Mark Fisher. Um, and for Fisher, he describes the weird as something from another kind of dimension that has imposed itself on our dimension, basically. Something from one world that shouldn't be here, but is here. Um, and the eerie is what he calls a failure of absence or a failure of presence. So, uh, an empty hospital uh, is an eerie place to be because you expect things to be happening there that aren't, right? Or if there's a figure standing in a hallway where that figure is not supposed to be, that's eerie for him. And so Carpenter really makes use of both of those kind of concepts a lot. And he's very also influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. And so Lovecraft is weird fiction, right? And so it's all about something from another dimension imposing itself on this world and the aliens i just think the the genius of this movie mm -hmm. is that he's basically saying capitalism is not natural to human beings it's imposed on us by aliens from another world this is no mm -hmm. no less violent than cthulhu coming <laughs> right i think mm -hmm. it's a really interesting uh, claim that makes that i think that's how this movie fits into what is kind of carpenter-esque about the nature of evil I'll I, stop there. I could go all yeah. day about that. <laughs> oh, no, no, for sure. I mean, and it's interesting to me to, to think, and I, and I I I can't give credit where credit is due um, in terms of where I read this or saw this and thinking about this film, but the fact that the distinguishing feature is the 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 the, the what is uh, obviously a very similar to human form was stripped away so that the eyes, the bug out eyes, you know, the Marty Feldman eyes are, uh, uh, are, are, are staring at you and the mouth is, you know, banished. It's just a, it's, it's just the skull like, uh, you know, jaw that you would expect on a, on a human skeleton. Um, those expressive things, our mouths and our eyes are completely stripped away, if you will, yeah. in, 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 in a sense and stripping bare, yeah. uh, to, to, you know, to, in, in some respects in that way it's like michael myers's mask right it's like human sure. face stripped of all human detail right it, it's a completely blanked out human face and it's a mm -hmm. it's a it's almost like the the culmination of michael myers mask what you're talking about yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um so dan I, I wonder you know as i think about carpenter I, and as i listen to danny um uh 
talk about his work, it is kind of hard to stick him into any one box, right? I mean, even this film, is it a sci-fi film? Is it a horror film? Is it, is it a dystopian film? Um, where do you see this film, uh, Dan, as such, you know, fitting in with uh, the kinds of films that we all watched, I'm sure, um, in, in the sci-fi and dystopian and, 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 and a horror kind of arena? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I'm not going to be able to give that it justice right now. I, 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 I'm still kind of processing where I think it fits. Uh, um, I, I think it, it fits reasonably well in the um, the uh, grammar of that of the of that of the time for what was expected of a sci-fi like horror dystopian type. Um, it's uh, I would say more on the B movie side of those. Um, uh, I think one reviewer I was looking through, um, I didn't read the review, but the tagline was um, a good movie wrapped up in a bad movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that pretty much nails, at least for me. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it, it really, you know, you guys have done a good job in this discussion um, of helping kind of rehabilitate it a bit in my mind. My initial reaction was like, okay, that was definitely uh, pegged on the campiness meter there. Um, <laughs> I still think it's pegged on the campiness meter, um, but uh, it's um, there's a lot more depth to it than it appears at first um, uh, when you're thinking about it a little bit later. Um, I think that the, the the bad movie part of it is just um, I the 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 dialogue is just really um, stilted and in some cases almost nonsensical. Like I'm not even sure what um, it. it uh, some of the lines that that that's that um that uh and i think you guys already talked about this bit uh, that that roddy piper is throwing out there in the bank scene is just like really what or the scene in the the grocery store where he's like talking about formaldehyde face and and all this stuff i'm like maybe that works in the wwf context but i just didn't feel like it worked there it just seemed like way like overwrought in that in the and i think a lot of the dialogue was like that in the movie um uh and you know just the the production values with you know the this which i get i mean it's not the b- biggest budget movie ever i understand doesn't mean that it's bad in that sense but i found it somewhat distracting just some of the um the uh like the choreography of the fights and 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 the shooting at the shootouts just just felt just really re- not well, I don't know. It's hard, like um, those things to me were were distracting in my opinion from what was really underneath the uh, the surface actually not bad. And of course the ham-fistedness. I think if I had, if I, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, here I am being the, 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 I'm not, I'm no movie director, no producer, no John Carpenter, but if I were to do it, I would have, um, I think being a little bit less, ham-fisted with the points that you're trying to make. I don't know what that would look like necessarily. And just bumping up the the dialogue and the acting would have maybe made this not fly under the radar like it did. Um, but who knows, maybe it, the fact that it flew under the radar now is resurfacing in, in multiple contexts is part of its charm. You know, I know a good, you know, that's what they always say about, you know, bad, good movie, a B movie that's still so bad it's good. I'm not saying that it fits that mode, but it, it yeah. does feel like that. It feels like it's struggling to get out of that shell, so to speak. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's my take on it right now. I may change my mind down the road, but yeah. Well, I, I want to, I want to help us head to the exits here and, 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 and actually, um, bring up one of these ways in which this film has been resurrected, if you like, um, uh, in recent years, about five years ago, John Carpenter tweeted in response to the fact that, um, a number of far right groups have been taking, they live as a, as a commentary on the supposed Jewish conspiracy to rule the world. Um, and he was not happy about that at, at all. So, um, Danny, I, I, I'm going to give you the final word on, 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 on this. If you, uh, before we wrap up, what do you take from this? Uh, why is it that this film is, you know, well, I don't know. I, QAnon I mean, types are going to be happy about this. If it is read a particular way. Well, except, you know, they wouldn't necessarily, be happy with the message of like it's our economic system that's a, that's a problem right and so um i it's just the nature of conspiracy theories right and so you have to understand john carpenter made a conspiracy theory with this movie right and so oh, yeah. the the template is there i guess this is a frustration i have with particularly like liberal discourse about conspiracy theories and I think it's it's a, a less it's inherited from Richard Hofstadter's kind of foundational essay about that the uh, the paranoid style in American politics, um, which is people still cite. And it's an excellent essay. But Hofstadter is kind of working from this assumption that conspiracy theories are just the product of like a maladapted right wing, right? And so. Um, subsequently like and we seem to have forgotten this lesson like in liberal spheres um subsequently we understand that conspiracy theories are just a natural way everybody navigates the world john carpenter's made a very left-wing conspiracy theory movie here for example right uh, and so like i feel like there's a way in which liberals want to claim that conspiracy theories are just the product of the deranged right-wing imaginations right but you know, three years ago, everyone was talking about P tapes and, and Russian interference in elections and all this kind of thing, right? Where no evidence has ever been shown to, to be the case, right? But when you have that conversation, nobody buys that because it's their conspiracy theory. And therefore, they don't think of it as a conspiracy theory. They think of it as a form of enlightenment. And that's, yep. I mean, once you mm -hmm. deal, once you create a conspiracy theory, even as allegory, it is something. I mean, if they weren't using this, they could just as easily use Plato's cave, right? Uh, for uh, to get an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And so, yeah, there's a, a way in which you created a, a, a narrative that can fit any number of political agendas. And so, and so, yeah, he definitely didn't have any sort of anti-Semitic uh, claim to make about these Andromedan uh, aliens uh, being flashed down here to, to introduce capitalism to us, right? This is not um, at all what, what he was trying to do, but because it is a grand narrative that explains things, it could be taken any number of ways. And I just caution liberals from being too indignant about other people's conspiracy theories because it's just a natural way that human beings engage the world. Our mind, it's paradelia, right? Our mind puts patterns to chaos and, yeah. and we create our own conspiracy theories to explain chaos. And and I, I just think it's 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 become almost parodic for me to watch liberal Facebook um, talk about right-wing conspiracy theories, um, which are, I mean, I'm not saying they're good. I'm not saying that they're not terrible. They are terrible, but let's not get 
too ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> like right. we all we all engage in them, and so we 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 do. And I and I wonder at some level is Carpenter even throwing that thing under the bus too? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, in a in a meta way, you know, he's he's, he's sort of he's saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah he never like his films i mean one reason that his films aren't handled well by critics when they're released is that he's never pandering to like a a, a liberal audience right and, and so yeah. like he he is always sort of like um like a very independent thinker um he yeah. never does like hollywood parties and all that kind of thing so yeah um, i'll let dan follow up yeah that's a, some really good thoughts there danny um yeah that the I was going to bring up some similar things along the lines of the conspiracy theory angle of it is because obviously that's really uh, a big deal in our society political discourse right now, more so than it has been in a very long time. And so it's bound to be. Um, so that was all, all in my consciousness the whole time I'm watching it. And and it is a trope, you know, in the, in movies of this kind of nature to use this, that there's the, the, the sort of the wide eyed crazy you know bum on the street to it turns out to be right after all you know um yeah, 1984 think, is a conspiracy yeah theory. and <laughs> um so that's a that's not, that's nothing new in the in the in the, in the sci-fi uh, horror dystopian sphere here um but uh it for it just um sits uneasily with me because of what is uh what we're dealing with in our politics you're absolutely right to call out everybody it has a tendency towards these things. Yeah. Um, the thing that worries me is that certain sectors of our politics are being, uh, um, there's too much power being grabbed by the fringiest elements uh, right now. We'll always have those elements with us. Yeah. Because you said it's human nature, but it's becoming uh, a little bit too, um, uh, much of a less of a game now <laughs> and that's so um yeah i don't want to go down that road necessarily um but in this podcast but it's something that was in the back of my mind the whole time i i, I was watching this and wondering maybe we should be careful how we uh how we use these kinds of tropes in our movie making obviously in 1988 this kind of thing wasn't as much on the radar yeah. as it is does that make sense what I'm saying? It does. Things, not things, everybody, things. Yeah. <laughs> and not, and not, I mean, there's one thing, a flat earth guy might be ridiculous, but he's not storming the Capitol, right? You know? And yeah, there's, yeah. There's a, there's a difference there for sure. I also do think I, this is, I, I'm sure someone has written this and this is probably getting me in lots of trouble. I know lots of academics who are really into the conspiracy theory thing now uh, and being very worried about it. And it's ironic because many of them are actually constructing a conspiracy theory about the prevalence of conspiracy. Theory. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. 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 So, yeah it's I, very I, ironic. I've seen a lot of that so, too. And so like, you got to watch that too, because you could actually, it's almost like a tulpa that you're speaking into an existence. Mm. Um, and so you can't like, overplay the right-wing militia um con conspiracy theories of the 90s 
were way overblown. I mean, there yeah. were a couple of incidences, but there weren't like Michigan Michigan militias around every corner, right? And yeah. but according to the liberal news media, there were, right? And well, so, and we academics, and whether whatever your your political persuasion may be, I think we academics have a tendency to um, have a. We, I guess maybe we're just born with a less than a normal amount of self-awareness a lot of times. <laughs> we're, we're, we're way more, we're really good about figuring out what other people are, uh, are, yes. are flaws in their thinking. But what, it's, really, uh -huh. it's really hard for us to turn it on ourselves yes. and put in that lens and like, hmm, maybe I am engaging with some of the same stuff. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> we all love the hermeneutics of suspicion, but just not enough to apply it to our own thinking. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly right. Oh, well, this has been a rip-roaring uh, 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 episode, I, I've got to say. I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> um with uh with the two of you and i am going to uh sign off for now i do want i want I, you unintentionally gave a pre a preview though danny of, of our next <laughs> uh book of nature episode you said that conspiracy theorists are trying to make order out of chaos well we do have an old episode that we recorded during the pandemic that was never released on chaos and uh so we'll nice. be releasing that and we'll be releasing one on the sun after that. And then we'll get back to uh, producing new, uh, new content. And that'll do it for us today here at the Book of Nature, which is a member podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. On behalf of Dan Dawson and Danny Anderson, this is Todd Pedler saying thanks for listening. And we look forward to meeting you again someday at the Book of Nature. There is a signal broadcast every second of every day through our television sets. Even when the set is turned off, look around the environment we live in. Carbon dioxide, fluorocarbons, and methane have increased since 1958. Earth is being acclimatized. They are turning our atmosphere into their atmosphere. We are like a natural resource to them. Deplete the planet, move on to another. They want benign indifference. They want us drugged. We could be pets. We could be food. But all we really are is livestock. Our impulses are being redirected. We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society, and we are their unwitting accomplices. Their intention to rule rests with the annihilation of consciousness. We have been lulled into a trance. They have made us indifferent to ourselves, to others. We are focused only on our own game. Please understand they are safe as long as they are not discovered. That is their primary method of survival. Keep us asleep, keep us selfish, keep us sedated.